0: Welcome to the Bilge Pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.
1: Yes, it's working! Hello everyone, I do apologise if you're listening to this because this is episode 52 of Bilge Pumps. Drac can't be with us, but we have the wonderful Trent Lenko with us. And the reason you saw me, heard me so happy at the beginning is because normally it's Drac who pressed the recording button and it works. And it's just taken me three minutes to get the recording button to work. So poor Jamie and Trent have been sitting watching me swear at Skype for about <laughs> the last three minutes. <laughs> Finally got it to work. So thank you very much. This is, of course, episode 52. So, thank you to everyone who listens to us. We are worried that there are quite so many of you now. We feel like that sort of suggests we need to be sl- very, very careful with our, um, some of our pronouncements because if there are, I think it's almost or roughly around 80,000 downloads. Um, yeah, so we need to be, uh, 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 we need to be very nice to you all. Uh, thank we, we you. Better for up, listening. We better upgrade uh, the. We better upgrade the quality of bilge. Yes, definitely. <laughs> the first rate bilge journey now. First rate bilge journey. So, today's topic. We are of course. It's me, Doctor Alex Clark. It's Jamie, and it's Trent who both introduce themselves in a second. And today's topic is basically Trent, who's been on the bilge trunks before, got in contact with Jamie and said. Dr. Clark and Drak are ganging up on you and being cruel about your drone carrier idea, and I can tell you how it could work, and I can back you up. And so this was going to be set up for a 2v2, you know, basically me and Drac, uh taking uh, the um, arguing against the two <laughs> informed opinions of Trent and Jamie. Uh, and now, of course, it's just left to me to be the devil's advocate and argue against, but... Um, Let's we'll see how well I do with that. So, Trent just, just, year, just uh, put uh, on your best BT cap.
0: <laughs>
1: yeah. <laughs> Actually, no, of the things suggested this morning, there was someone going around going, who would you who would be the uh, who from the past would be the best on Twitter? And I went, well, there's no one I can really think about on Twitter, but BT's definitely the best if he was alive, he would be obsessed with Instagram. That man is always obsessed with putting his photo everywhere. He would love Instagram, <laughs> let's be honest. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so, so the,
0: um, yeah, we, we discussed the other week about the uh, plight, I suppose, or the con- condu- the position that Turkey finds themselves in now that they aren't allowed to have the F-35, which may or may not be a blessing disguise. Um, my argument was that well, you've got a perfectly capable flight deck there. Um, it's a flight deck that was it's a LHD to the same design as the um, Australian and Spanish. Uh, LHDs, um, just optimized for for operating aircraft, whereas the Australian ones are optimized for um, the the landing and troop carrying side of things. So my thoughts were that, you know, with the proliferation and the success of drone technology and also the fact that Turkey is very actively involved in building and developing um, its own drone technology, that, well, it's not really a wasted capability. It's a a ship that can perhaps pave the way for a new uh, force multiplying effect, I suppose, in that eastern uh, Mediterranean environment. So you guys thought that it didn't really offer any advantage over land-based forms of the uh, technology. which you know, may well be true for the eastern Mediterranean.
1: Yes, that was pretty but, much the eastern Mediterranean. We didn't think it was very sensible because, let's be honest, it's not very far from land in the first place.
0: But Turkey is getting involved in places like Libya. So, you know, that's starting to get a little bit out, out outside of one's own backyard. Mm. Anyway, so the idea of is, is the technology, the technology involved. And it, what, what does this mean? Is it practicable, and what does the what opportunities do these technologies provide once you start adding them all together? i guess this, I guess this is where trend comes in
2: mm. uh, let's walk back a minute to the idea of drones drones the the assault drones that everyone is going ooing and eyeing about actually reach back more than seventy years. Mm-hmm. Uh, the United States military in World War two took, uh, Vladimir Zvorkin of RCA's TV system to make it a TV guidance system for Project Aphrodite, the, uh, assault drone that killed Joe Kennedy, uh, the brother of, uh, President John Kennedy. Uh, it was used in the TDR-1 in the Southwest Pacific to drop bombs on the Japanese using a TV-guided drone controlled by an Avenger aircraft. The, uh, United States Army Air Force converted a fair number of, of used up b-17s and b-24s into assault drones that they're referred to as Worry Willie or project anvil or it went through a number of name changes but it had a, a nice TV guidance system there is a several videos of those tests on YouTube uh, from the critical past folks that show one of these b-17s slamming into the side of the mountain with a combination of a of explosives and napalm, uh, the idea being to run them into Japanese caves in the in the event we invaded Japan. The nuclear bomb removed that possibility. Uh, the TDR-1 technology was used in Korea on F6F Hellcats to uh, attack North Korean dams. Uh, Teledyne Ryan had its Firebee drone turned into not only a electronic warfare platform to drop chaff and to jam uh, North Vietnamese radars. It was also uh, running around with a pair of Maverick missiles. Um, And it was run from a uh, C-130 control ship that that sent four of them in to support air ops. Um, In the 80s, the United States started borrowing Israel, well, borrowing bought through uh, Secretary of the Navy, Lehman, a pioneer drone to put on Iowa-class battleships. And mm. since the Cold War ended, we, the CIA got the Predator drone to start potting uh, Islamic militants here, there, and everywhere. And the military decided... U.S. military decided that, you know, drones are a good thing and it's much better than flying the wings off our F-16s doing all these air interdiction zones over Iraq. So since 2001, it's been a hothouse of development of technology that's been picked up, used, and thrown away because the pilots don't like the competition. Well, now that aircraft are so expensive, manned aircraft are so expensive, and we haven't bought very many in the last 25 years, Drones are simply cheaper for providing a military capability right now to fight the low-end wars. The problem is technology has changed to the point where the barriers to entry for regional powers to get into the high-end drone game have in the last 10 years dropped substantially, in large part because of uh, 3D printing slash additive manufacturing technology. making the platforms easy to produce and the, electron- the off-the-shelf electronics are such that you can get a very significant capability in a relatively small package. And the Turks, for a time, were allies with Israel uh, and got a lot of that technology transferred to them. And uh, they were also in the F-35 program, and they got handed the painting part of the program. that And I don't know how much either of you know about painting for stealth aircraft, but it's a fairly toxic brew. There are a lot of litigation of, arising from the F-117 that wound up being settled out of court because the U.S. government did not want to let all of the information on the coatings that are radar absorbent to get out into the public sphere via the US ports. Well, that technology was transferred to Turkey in order to do the painting of the F-35. That was their share in that program. Um, simple observation. If you know how to do radar absorbing paint for an F-35, putting it on a drone is pretty duck soup. Well, so, I so- To well, say I would
0: that- so it's paint.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You know it's he was a NATO ally tech transfer, all that good stuff. well, they've got an islamist as as their their local tyrant now, so that pretty much leaves us with the fact that the Turks have high end drone technology, they have pretty damn good radar absorbent material technology, and we are looking at a expansionist power uh or let me rephrase it, we have an expansionist leader of a regional power. I'm not sure their economy will support expansionism, but right now they're running uh, proxy wars in Libya and Syria, and they're using drones left, right, and center, and are doing a fairly significant job of uh, dealing with high-end integrated air defense systems from the Russians. Uh, Syria is the Spanish Civil War of, of modern electronic warfare. That is, all the high-end stuff is being used there. That's the Turks' front yard. Um, when the Azeri-Armenian war kicked off and the video started flowing in, you were seeing drones controlling drones and queuing drones. There is a uh, video on YouTube showing three drones going after an Armenian Tor battery, which was on a wheeled platform. They... a uh, TB-2 saw it at long range, moving one position to another, backed the hell off, and called in a little Car- Cargo-2 drone, which is a, uh, a four-rotor helicopter with basically a mortar shell and a TV. And they flew that into the garage that they backed this, this tour into. And then the TB-2 came up. It dropped a munition. It was a small munition. It's like, that's not enough. They called a heavy rocket. Guided rocket, GPS guided rocket, and they made the Taurus garage, which had been hit and burning, into a crater just to make sure. And these are the actions of a first high tier, first rank, peer competitor drone fighting capability. Now you can say, okay, we'll bring it up 22. It's not a problem. The issue is uh, they also have the latest and greatest, the Turks, uh, S-400 surface-to-air missiles, which are a level above the Patriot and a step below the FAD. They are The Turks also have F-16s, and they have the E-7 uh, AWACS. When I look at that, I see a first-tier power. I'm not seeing someone who's second-tier. And because the Turks have been using drones in combat against high-end integrated air defense systems for the last five years. The idea of a Turkish drone carrier gets really, really interesting in that they have high-end technology, they have combat-tested people, and they've been running against high-end air defenses. And they've also worked with those high-end air air defenses. And they've got a pretty damn good idea what's in the F-35 since they were working on the project. Now, if you take a carrier and you say, okay, I'm not going to give you the F-35. And they say, okay, I'm going to put a folded wing TB2 and a bunch of them on this carrier. And I start doing flight ops. Well, A TB2 can hang out for 8-12 hours at a distance of several hundred, perhaps a thousand miles. I'm just looking at the... Sure, you can come up with, with your fighter plane and shoot it down. But if the Turks are running their E7s and they're talking to their own F-16s, well, it looks a whole lot different because they've got radar control of that airspace they've got drones in that airspace they've got a command and control platform it's not running one drones but actually running drones running drones that is they've got a drone swarm first level it's worked in combat it's worked in combat against high end integrated air defense systems now the armenians were not the most competent in using their air defense systems but they've also been, the Turks have also been running against the Russians in Syria, who are competent. So when I put all that together, I see that stuffed in a uh, LHD. And I see that the, the Turks are also playing at 3D printing. Everyone is. Because there's no, the advantages of 3D printing are such in terms of being able to make one or two or three somethings quickly that you can accelerate your drone development quite literally with battle reports in less than a month and they've been fighting for five years with drones
1: so could, uh, could theoretically could it be you know what you're talking about here it would seem to me is you've got the lhd being a drone carrier with its own 3D printing system on its own organic system that can actually adapt and evolve to events quite quickly relative to modern warfare. And of course, one of the things we often forget with Turkey is they do actually have quite an active satellite fleet. Um, They have free com satellites and free surveillance satellites at the moment, I think they have. Um, And I think they're trying to get more. So they do actually have some communications up there. And unlike the British, they haven't named their satellites after the system which takes over the world in Terminator. So, you know, perhaps we can feel slightly more secure about that one. That is the joke which never stops getting. Everyone knows it's coming and everyone always laughs. Um, The thing is, though, and this is my point when I'm talking about the Turkish, I can see that working, but I'm sitting there going, okay, yes. But if I have the LHD for going further away to, let's say, Libya then I don't have my E-7 support, then I don't have the F-16s. It's there on its own. And if it's operating closer, then can't I just operate from an airbase? Why am I operating it from an LHD? And this is to the point where the thing which Trent said, which has really got me and Drak interested, is because you turned around and said, well, actually, it shouldn't be the Turkish LHD, which is the new drone carrier. It should be the forward class. And... That's got me interested because, again, I I talk about the Queen Elizabeth class and I've talked about before about them taking on drones as well. And this is one of the reasons why I think Britain is slow walking its F-35 procurement, because honestly, I think we're looking at drones for them and looking at at that being a mixed air group of drones and F-35s. And I actually think that's a good idea, because if we go back again to what you were talking earlier, Trent, about it. You need airborne early warning. Well, that at the moment that's an E7 wedgetail or a um, Merlin Crow's Nest, but that could also be a drone with a radar high up. Uh you need an air defence platform. Well, probably you're going to pick the F 35 or F 16 for that for the short term, at least. And you need a strike aircraft. Well, that could also be the same drone, which can also be modified to carry your radar, kind of like Brenda. And then you need anti submarine warfare helicopters if you want a full carrier group. And you suddenly sit there and go, Well, that suddenly becomes a very simple carrier group, doesn't it? It becomes three types of aircraft. And you then go, Well, how many F thirty fives do I need for air defence? Probably about eighteen. How many F thirty uh, fives is the Queen Elizabeth Class going deploying around the world with at that moment? Two squadrons. <laughs> Roughly eighteen. It starts to fit when you start to think about these things like that. So I have to say, but my thing, again, I get back to the Turkish Navy with LHD, and I, I, I agree, Trent, they've got all the technology, they could do it. I just don't see the point. Because I said, if they're fighting in Libya, then they're away from all those F-16s and that E-7. But if they're fighting closer to home, then why do they need an LHD for that? To
2: do that as their drone carrier. Two reasons. One is secure facilities to operate from. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't underestimate that. And the other is you've got the high high end communications platform with with an LHD that you just it takes a whole lot of work, a whole lot of transport to set up at an airbase somewhere, and then you've got something that is reachable. By irregular forces, which the Middle East is filthy with. Uh, and you've also got the issue of yeah, we just saw the war in Gaza, and you've got irregular forces throwing 4,000 uh, rockets, some of which reach out 100 kilometers. Now, if you're dealing with a land based uh, communications and command and control node, and you've got an enemy that can drop you know, a volley of several hundred rockets on any fixed location within 100 kilometers, the LHD starts looking pretty good because it's mobile. (laughs) And it has escorts that can shoot things down. Hmm. If you're talking the ability to secure a command and control node with high-end electronics, with a 3D printing facility, with drone air group, it just makes a whole lot more sense from the security point of view to put it on an LHD than to put it on an airbase, especially if you're dealing with a threat environment where anybody and their sister can show up with with rockets that reach out a hundred clicks. And oh, by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but Iran has been talking a lot about its wonderful GPS upgrades to long-range rockets, which they say they have given to Hezbollah in Libya, in Lebanon. Excuse me. This was. This was the threat that Israel was looking over its back at during the fighting in Gaza. They were concerned that at some point Hezbollah would come in and they would open up with a lot of GPS rockets after the Israelis had been run out of of Tamir uh, interceptors on their uh, Iron Dome system.
1: Well, that, of course, is an entirely another debate where people keep saying, oh, that's going to be unprofitable. And uh, I agree with you very much on your posts recently on Twitter on that, Trent, where you've been basically going, that's such an entirely different economics debate. You ta- Once you're talking about Iron Dome, then you- when you're talking about it, actually becomes down to a production debate. I. Can you produce enough? You- um, the point is, though, OK, so let's say Turkey has a reason for it. What about Australia? Because they have two LHDs they're building. Would it make I sense for them? Build. We, we build. Oh, it makes a lot
2: of sense.
0: Um, yeah. Well, look. You know. Again, it, uh, I've more sense thought, than thought...
1: buying some B twenty ones.
0: Well, look. I mean, I'm winding up it. Jamie.
1: This one here. The, the, yeah. the, the let's face it. Yeah. It.
0: I don't. I don't think that uh, any attempt to reinforce Taiwan is going to work with um, World War II style amphibious beachheads. Um, And I think that, uh, yes, probably we'll find ourselves needing a hell of a lot of anti-submarine focus, than a hell of a lot more anti-submarine focus than what we've got. So if we can quickly adapt some, you know, drone systems to operate off of flight decks to help get our, uh, well, we have no onshore fuel reserves, um, and apparently America is looking after fuel for us, but we don't actually have our own uh, merchant ships with which to transport that fuel. And, um, well, we've been hearing a lot from Sal lately about how America's own merchant fleet is uh, diminishing. So, you know, whatever we ha- whatever gets sent our way, we're going to have to look after very, very carefully. So, um, yes, if we can get a, um, a, you know, a comprehensive anti-submarine warfare um, element out there, whether it's drone-based or whatever, it's got, you know it, it, that might be a role to give these vessels. But just getting back to what you were saying before, though, about the the, the drone mix and uh, and the layering of drones. Now, I mean, Australia's jumped on board the whole loyal wingman concept. Now, my understanding of that version of the drone um, universe, I suppose, as it's unraveling, is that these are supposed to be the counter area denial weapons of choice that these are the things you push push forward to pave away for your very expensive crude f-35 is this a similar sort of thing that would be applied by a you know a drone carrying lhd that uh, you have you, you send out your um 15 20 30 mid-sized drones and then wait wait for those tanked F-16s to follow up behind?
2: Well, the biggest thing that I see drones doing in the short term is an expendable munition at the area that you want to strike, playing the harm missile game of, of exterminating radars. And... For the F-35s, realistically, you need a good tanker, and you can get a higher mass fraction of fuel for an unmanned aircraft to tank up an F-35 than you can with with you know any sort of hose and drogue system that you care to name. You know whether you using F-35 to fuel up other F-35s or you know other aircraft in the air wings. You know the the U.S. Navy can can buddy tank with its F-18s. But if you have a nice little, well, it wouldn't actually be little, but if you had a nice tanker drone that could tank up two, three, four, five F-35s, suddenly you're looking at something that's got a radius of action of about a 1,000 miles. And uh, it could be carrying a lorasm, which will reach out another 500. So suddenly it looks really good. And if you're dealing with something if you make your tanker drone a low observable platform that is you know if it's flying up at 30,000 feet you got to be really close to see it then you play all sorts of games with being able to tank close to the enemy so that when your manned aircraft goes in it can use its uh, afterburner to dodge missiles if it comes to that because radar stealth is great if someone's behind and below you and, and shoots an infrared missile at you, you need to generate some miss distance. Uh, that Having enough fuel in the aircraft is vital to do that. Um, the Operations Room uh, YouTube channel has a very nice uh, post up about the F-16 strike on Baghdad in the first Gulf War, uh, showing, uh, I guess it's slick. Thirteen or Slick 3, I'm not sure, the aircraft, how it managed to dodge six SAM missiles fired at close range because the pilot was hopped on adrenaline and did not want to die. But he had a lot of fuel and aircraft that were low on fuel, tankers came from their orbits in Iraq and came up to uh, deep, uh, deep inside the country to fuel them up. If you've got a somewhat stealthy, expendable drone tanker, you can play that game against a high-end integrated air defense system because its early warning radars can't get its big, long-range, 400-kilometer SAMs uh, enough early warning to to engage. They can't see it because it's it's operating far enough away from it that, you know, it can't be seen at 200 kilometers and and the extra uh, 200 kilometers of range on the missile is wasted. The way you peel back an integrated air defense system is you use a combination of expendable munitions and stealth to get platforms close enough to engage the radars, which have to irradiate to send out energy and say, here I am. If you've got a good SIGINT system, even if the radar turns off while the missile or your little drones are coming in, I think the, uh, the European, one of the, the French companies has got a uh, really neat missile that it has turned into an expendable drone. They've basically taken the seeker set and put it on a longer range drone body so that they can flood the zone with lots of, of aircraft or, or anti-aircraft, Sam killing uh, drones to support a strike, if you've got a LHD that can fly a tanker drone that has an alternate mode of oh I, I can carry a, a a drone swarm of of radar hunting drones that you know so I've got one big drone that's acting as as a wingman to carry lots of itty bitty uh, SAM killing uh, drones. And even if, if the radars on the other end turn off soon enough so these little drones can't get them, if they sit there for the 15 or 20 minutes the F-35 is doing its thing, if they come up on the air, they're going to die. And if they don't shoot at the F-35, they're going to die. You know, you've got to create a situation where all the, the other side's options are bad. And drones will let you do that,
0: at a, an affordable cost. So, um, so perhaps j- just you know taking this onto a bigger picture, you know, further future conceptual basis. So maybe don't necessarily turn the Ford into a uh, drone carrier, but certainly have a companion vessel with a whole rack of uh, raw materials, three D printing plastic, uh, um, l- low observable paint copper spools uh, seeker heads and um tailor make an air group of support drones for the f-35s on the uh the ford so that it can do whatever the mission is required that comes up and you can and even if you don't know what that mission is well then you can just print the body assemble the um components that you need the night before you
1: I think you're going to have a lot of trouble selling the idea that a hundred and something thousand tonne ship is going to need a dedicated support ship next to it. I have a (laughs) feeling there are going to be some financial uh, people in Congress who are going to be going, what? I think in nicest way, if it's uh, mixing, it's operating a combined drone. You see, again, I can see this Queen Elizabeth class. I could imagine them putting 3D printing onto the Queen Elizabeth class, going with Trent's earlier argument, they following his logic. I can imagine doing that. It's another reason why I wish they were slightly bigger, because I wish that hangover space was bigger so you could put in, uh, you would have more space for it. But I could see them doing that with drones. I can see you building a loyal wingman program. I know uh, Australia is developing a loyal wingman program and have been working on it quite a advanced. I know Britain's looking at that. And um, my sincere thing is sitting here going at what point does the technology for the loyal wingman merge with the technology for your ability to print and desire drones big enough and if you look at the scale of the growth does it have of to? 3d printing
0: does it have to though indeed mean, i mean is the three, is is the loyal wingman the next level up from you know the the support drone that we're talking about here i mean basically I we're talking honestly, about basically could, we're there... talking about 3d printing Missiles, or single, as you were saying before, single shot, expendable. Um, they're not, not even weapons. They're devices, as such, aren't they? they? It's out there for a purpose, whether it's surveillance, whether it's electronic warfare, whether it's um, anti-radiation.
1: Yeah, um, but it, you know, it, you, you've it, got
0: basically you're, you're replacing your VLS launcher with an optimizable production system. Um, I, I, yes, 3D printing may, may well be way too slow anyway for all of this but the, the point is, is that you know if you can actually tailor make a 3 tier sort of strike group where you've got your Expendables you've got your more permanent loyal wingmans and then you've got your Crude at the top of the pyramid well, I though, think that I'm
1: sorry. just going to jump in Trump, before you do just Quickly because I think with the 3D printing the reason I say I think the Loyal Wingman will end up being a free 3D, 3D printed is because then I think it becomes the ultimate Loyal Wingman. Because you literally can Ah uh, we've lost the Loyal Wingman sacrifices itself to defend it, defend the manned aircraft, the crewed aircraft. It the sacrificed itself, it put throws of from missiles. That's not a problem. Comes back. Okay, this will be, why can't it be carrying print. why can't it be carrying drones that do that? It, it could well be carrying drones, but it might need to do it itself. Yeah. And the thing is, if you can print something that big at that certain point, you go, you know, what? You, your basic, you then create your enemy a problem because they go, right then, their air group is this size, but hang on, they can 3D print it. So for them, uh, losses are meaningless. Losses become meaningless in terms of drones. Attrition,
2: attrition. You know, the thing about 3D printing, additive manufacturing, on a large logistical platform like a ford class aircraft carrier is you can stack a whole lot of printing media and click it together, Lego click together electronics in a space that you could put an F-35 and it spares. It's just a much denser ability to store things. The logistical leverage of being able to manufacture on the spot devices that are usable for combat and are your deep attrition for your air group, suddenly it's a lot easier to fly in a box of titanium print media than it is to build an aircraft and fly that in. Uh, it's easier to fly in a box of electronics that you have, you know, we've got our standard software that we can plug in and Lego together something. The low end expendable drones uh, with a 3D printing system involved on your forward node, forward logistical and combat node, gives you deep magazines, which you don't have with VLS. Now, admittedly, the kind of drones that you can print quickly are not going to be an SM6. Well, not everything is a backfire bomber or a badger bomber. And frankly, if you can print something that's relatively low performance, but can carry a pair of SM6 up to 30,000 feet, and you can put it forward with your Hawkeye and fire an SM, two SM6s from 30,000 feet to high altitude to drop on someone, either a ship or an airplane, and an SM6 from 30,000 feet is probably going to reach out easily 300, 400 kilometers. You got yourself the tomahawk capability that the Navy threw away at the end of the Cold War. Actually, it's much better because an SM6 is a whole lot better than a Phoenix. And the ability to have deep magazines that you can tailor. And you can, you know, I'm seeing this, it, we don't understand it. You you send information, electronic warfare by satellite back to the United States, the engineers there say, okay, do this. It's got this thing, you got to program your drones this way. They sent TDP, technical data package, by satellite to your forward carrier, and it's starting to produce a new capability on the spot that meets the threat. That sort of evolution is just, you know, and especially if you're talking things like learning AIs involved in dealing with the electronic warfare side, Things get really interesting really fast. But yeah,
0: it's, it's, it's 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 no different except for speed to what yes. we know happened in World War II or anyway. So you, you would get field modification kits made for your aircraft in order to patch a problem or to in, enhance its performance, whether it's ripping pieces out of a, a sea hurricane in order to, to give them more power, whether it's uh, plugging the... Um, uh, the the airframe in front of the, the the tail wheel of the Corsair, so that the um, exhaust fumes from the engine don't get sucked back through the tail wheel hole into the cockpit of the Corsair. Um, yeah, you know, these things are all things that were learnt the hard way, and usually through losing aircrew, which you had your mechanics on the field fix uh, through hard experience. But you can, you know, you can take that a whole level further and a whole level quicker with, okay, well. Your ne- the next version of your Corsair that you print, okay? It's only a, we're talking a drone, won't have that floor built into it in the first place. It'll be taken out of the design, or you will get that extra um, radio, um, electronic warfare package added to the mix. So, because you know that that particular island fortress is using a certain bandwidth against you, or you're against your last strike package that you've sent up in the morning. So it's the same process. It's just accelerated, accelerated. because you can accelerated. actually accelerated you can you can you can plug and play, and you can print on on your ship on your HMS Unicorn. You can you know how when
1: we over t- to an argument you just mentioned <laughs> you, you, HMS Unicorn. You can, you nice can
0: start smile. you can start slapping those um, Barracuda bits and pieces onto the Avenger.
2: Well, let's <laughs> let's get back to the U.S. Navy has been playing hard with three D printing since twenty thirteen. Uh, there was a uh, maritime prepositioning ship that they put a printer on. The next year, they, they put it on, on LHD. Uh, I've got a list here. Let me see if I can... Anyway, they in 14, 15, 16, they were putting LHDs, and uh, one of the uh, strike carriers has 3D printing uh, fab labs installed so that they can print parts. The uh, LHD, the Essex, was printing parts for its F-35s because F-35 spares packages come, you know, a large amount of things at once. It costs a lot, there aren't very many of them, but there are little plastic things inside that are necessary for the plane to operate that break faster than the rest of the spares package. They're printing those to keep the F-35s running. What 3D printing does is It shortens your for a lot of consumables that break quickly on aircraft. It provides the ability to keep the plane running. And this is already being used by the U.S. fleet. The question is, unmanned systems skip a whole lot of uh, critical safety item regulation that's involved with manned aircraft. You've got to do things a certain way to make sure everything is documented and properly tested so the item works. And it comes from an active production line and we know everything that's going on. Well, it, when you're printing a drone that is ultimately expendable, uh, a lot of those rules just don't apply. And that's why drones are developing much faster than manned aircraft, because they don't have the human safety bureaucracy that's been built up by 100 years of flight to try and prevent an aircraft from becoming a smoking hole with, with a, a burnt charred corpse in the middle of, to deal with. That's why they are developing faster than, than any other technology, because they're, since you generally don't care, I mean, yes, maybe you've got a $5 million drone, ouch, it crashes, that's $5 million, we're unhappy. But if there's not a body inside it, oh my God! You know that's from the point of view of dealing with the aftermath of an accident. That makes a huge amount of difference. I don't. It, it, since I spent 33 years in the in the U.S. Uh, procurement world, uh, unmanned versus manned is a really big difference in terms of okay, it's just a thing versus a person. Yeah. There's a huge bureaucracy built up to making sure that people aren't killed and they're pretty good at if you if you look at the accident rates for modern jets compared to the jets of the 1950s it's just two three orders of magnitude less likely to die in carrier accidents than you were at that time if you Uh, consider in
1: 1950s there's i wrote an article a long time ago a, a piece which became as um peaking obsolescence or forgotten innovation i call it and it's on um it's on global maritime history i think it's on published on them there. and it was all about the propeller aircraft which british the the royal navies the british royal navy principally but also some of the commonwealth navies were using in the 1950s and there was a lot of comments back People were going but why are they still using them it's jet age and i go well they're reliable they're safe let's be honest, you're using so many jets at the moment, you want some of your air group to actually be alive a few days after war begins, because, you know, the jets are not only getting shot down by the enemy, they're shooting themselves down because they're falling out the sky, whereas you have these conventional World War II sort of start almost style piston propeller aircraft, or even turboprop aircraft, which are incredibly reliable, incredibly effective, and they work well, and people forget that when you're talking about Uh, The Suez Crisis, it's not a popular thing to talk about. No one really wants to study it because it's such a bad part of history. But if you look at it from a combat air support perspective, what were the aircraft which were the most in demand for combat air support? It was the Western Wyverns. These propeller-powered aircraft. In the jet age, in 1956, the most useful aircraft were the propeller ones. If you go to Korea... And you talk about the carrier support. There are entire Royal Navy carriers going out there without any jets on. And people going, they can't have been doing much in Korea. They were providing combat air support like anything. The troops were in demand because they were reliable. You'd send them it's up. It's the same, they'd actually the same still with the Marine Corps
0: Corsairs yeah, The yeah. Corsairs were very heavily in demand as well, weren't they, for the, for yeah. the U.S.? But, so I guess that's the level we're talking about now for drones, isn't it? Underneath yeah. the underneath the expensive peak technology you've got the reliable the you know the workhorses but the, the advantage is is that they're also not going to get someone killed if they get shot down or if they crash
2: yeah robot on war- robot warfare uh people just don't care i mean let's let's be honest if there are no pow's from your drones being shot down and you're you're fighting a a bushfire war, where you're supporting a local government uh, with special forces, or hell, you're using mercenaries. This is the Turkish uh, thing that they are doing in Syria. And yes, you're you're losing your merch, you're losing your drones. Does the people, the polity at home, give a rip? No. It's not their sons. Hmm. Now, but as soon as you uh,
0: have a pilot behind enemy lines. It's another matter, isn't it's it?
2: somebody's son, it's yeah. somebody's uh husband who's, who gets tortured and put on television and blinks be- that I'm being tortured. Mm-hmm. That's sort of you know, that moves people. People care about people, they don't care about things unless it's their thing, in which case they care more about that than anything else. But <laughs> that's just the way people are.
1: Yes. So we're going to get a lot of very upset naval technicians who are building these 3D, these, these printed drones, but not anyone else. And honestly, we're just satisfied then by telling them you can build a better one next time.
2: Yeah. <laughs> well, it, the thing about teleoperated warfare is you are replacing people with robots. And that's where warfare is going. That's what the Azeri-Armenian war taught more than anything else was that you can use drones to hunt people. There's an incredible and scary video that just popped up on uh, Rob Lee, the uh, reporter that, does, that specializes in Soviet and Mideast uh, work, showing a Cargo 2 drone, which is a, a four-rotor quadcopter uh, that is size and shape that you can buy off Amazon or any of the other sites. And it, it's flying past a squad of Armenian infantry and it notices them and it does a nice loop around and then it explodes over the group of them. And it was being watched by a, TD, a TB2 at high altitude that was, that was either controlling the drone or telling the, you know, the operator of the TB2 uh, was talking to the operator of the cargo 2 who had a very small camera that could only see directly in front of him? Hey, spin around and look look right. And suddenly he did. Oh, target! And he flew a drone over it and blew it up over them. And and uh, drones hunting people are here, folks. And yeah, so
0: there's only a report only this week, wasn't there? Um, potentially an an AI operated uh, or AI controlled Turkish drone in Libya um, spotted retreating forces and made its own decision to uh engage apparently
2: yeah, so. yeah. well mm. it, look the the idea of controlling ai's not to kill people that that is a ship that has sailed it's mm. here right now he's so, saying d- we go ahead i was just going to
0: say that so so th- that level of drone conflict seems to be very different to the direction that drone strategy, drone te- uh, development has been appearing to go. We've been, you know, the West appears to have been building uh, these extremely large global hawks and tritons. And uh, now, you know, the uh, we, we've moved on to the next generation of predators, I suppose. Um, and also the, um, uh, you know, as I was saying before, the, the, the emphasis now appears to be on the loyal wingman. Um you know, is, are we just replacing big expensive crude aircraft with big expensive robot aircraft? Is that is is that defeating the whole purpose of uh the, the whole point of mass production, tailor making, um, you know th- that these lower end drones can just overwhelm big expensive stuff with?
2: It's a matter of pilot unions. Um to be blunt about it. Uh Pilots view their aircraft the way that knights view their chargers. They are, they're you know, part of their identity. So when you get pilots in charge of drone development, they get bigger and bigger and they look more and more like manned aircraft because that's what they like. Uh, if you don't have a really strong pilot culture, and Turkey really doesn't, then lots of smaller drones make sense plus they're fighting a lot of
0: their pilots a lot of their pilots went were, were put in jail weren't they after the uh yes, two attempts
2: exactly. <laughs> it was in the interest of the the uh, regime? regime i'll just i'll use that term to, to be polite uh to go with small air power that's unmanned because they don't have political reliable pilots um This puts the United States Air Force and the United States Navy in in a really difficult position. Marine Corps, to a lesser extent, because the Marine Corps creed is every man a rifleman. So they, you know, giving a Marine squad uh, drones is like, hey, let's go with that, because our identity isn't to be a pilot. Our identity is every Marine a rifleman, and everyone there is to support the rifleman. Uh, The United States Army views helicopters as trucks. Sometimes they're armed trucks, but they don't really have the, you know, trucks, tanks, helicopters. They're all expendable platforms. You know, the Army is into mass death. That's what they do. Uh, They want the mass death to be on the other side. That's why they have artillery. But using expendable things to do the forward observer mission or to do the killing is in their operational paradigm. Um, because the Navy, when I was talking about all those earlier drones and yes, you had a useful capability and then it was peacetime and the pilots threw it away because it's taking money away from manned aircraft. Well, now you have a whole bunch of capability, air power wise and very small platforms, very expendable platforms that are much more appropriate for a squad or a company or a battalion of infantry to operate than a pilot back in an airfield. There's no way that you're going to have enough satellite bandwidth to operate a drone swarm close to the the forward edge of the battlefield. So that means you've got to have men and communications equipment close to operate these things. Um, The reason I like the idea of the LHD drone carrier is it's mobile. That is, yes, I can operate the big stuff at long distance, but I can also close in a lower threat environment and flood the zone with lots and lots of itty bitty drones and do things in low intensity warfare that I cannot do uh, with a low enough cost in human people. Uh, Is is, is this
0: something that could actually make the, the LCS ships viable, give them a purpose? They're supposed um, to have these, they're supposed to have these uh, large uh, mission bays where you, you know plug and play which never actually got off the ground but if you put in a mission bay with um your your 3D printer, your control unit and a whole you know a, a preloaded software for a bunch of um small to medium sized drones um is that then going to be a a vessel that might actually be a meaningful contribution to a uh, to a battle fleet well,
2: I, First you have to get the the LCSs that have working uh Transmissions Shearing for their turbines, <laughs> uh, but if we're talking uh, the uh, trimaran Hall version of the LCS, yes, the, the, I've seen several designs that have shown, you know, basically pulling out all all the bays, including the helicopter bay, and putting in missile uh, platforms to turn it into basically a very fast, uh, forward deployed missile platform there's no reason that you can't make this a platform for the low-end drones to move in fast blarf a swarm of them and and get the hell out of there while you're under cover of of uh, air cover to do it i mean the idea of being able to use a really fast man platform to run forward drop a whole bunch of small things and depart the area, has a whole lot of advantages. Um, The issue with drones and and peer-to-peer warfare is what is your range of your command and control? What is your range of warning? And that gets us into another topic, uh, over-the-horizon backscatter radars. Um, Basically, they're land-based radar that bounces off the ionosphere and sees out 3,000 kilometers. Um, This is something that's got to be peeled back before you start putting your your drone control platforms into into, a peer conflict. You got to peel back those radars before you put your whatever platform in because, how to put it, the the hypervelocity weapons that, that are being talked about You know, things that are going faster than Mach 5 have a very, very, very small sensor footprint. Because if they're blazing away faster than Mach 5, they're coated with plasma from their passage through the atmosphere. That plasma is opaque to radio energy. You can't send a radar signal out. You can't be data-linked in. In order for it to see, it's got to get below about Mach 4, close to Mach 3, so your radars can work, so you can see something if you're using a over-the-horizon backscatter radar that can see a formation of ships so you can drop a hypervelocity salvo of missiles on top of that carrier group or whatever grouping of ships that you have uh if you've got a, a 3000 kilometer radar that gives you real time and a satellite that when the missile slows down enough to start looking you data link It's right here through the satellite, and now you've got a cued sensor that's dropping on a known location of warships at Mach 3. And suddenly things get, you know, that gets into the straight-up number games. How how much can you saturate that group? Where drones come in is if you've got a bunch, if your satellite cues you someone launched hypervelocity missiles and you've got 15 minutes. You can put a whole lot of drones into the air and fill the sky with chaff, with blip enhancing. That is the easiest form of electronic warfare is to have an electronic device that sees the radar signal and says, OK, I know what you are. I'm going to re-radiate back that signal more powerfully. So suddenly, rather than a little dot, I'm seeing a big, honky blob. Well, if I've got a sky filled with drones that's got lots of hunk that turns lots of honking blobs, then you can survive at long range versus hypervelocity swarms until such time as you take out those over the horizon backscatter radars and get closer. It's peer combat in the drone age is going to be strange because it is you've got to have senior leaders that eat drink, and excrete electronic warfare. And well, we the, have
0: a, It immediately makes me think... It immediately makes you think Nolka, the yes, hovering rocket. exactly. Well, why have hmm. a hovering rocket when you can have a drone that you can then recall land, refuel?
2: Ding, 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 whereas, ding. You got it in one.
0: <laughs> whereas hmm. with, with Nolka, after you've fired it, it runs out of fuel and drops into the ocean and you've lost your... Um, your, your it your makes
2: a lot of sense to put the Nolka capability... On a quadcopter, or you know, or a six-rotor uh, copter, or an eight-rotor copter, fly the puppy up, sit there for an hour, while you know, whoever is throwing lots and lots of hypervelocity missiles at you that only have a very short, very small sensor footprint, and you fill that sensor footprint with lots of long endurance electronic warfare platforms that are filling the sky with junk and i'm re-radiating back i all i can see is lots and lots and lots of of drones that are re-radiating back my radar signature and i'm seeing nothing but a cloud of target well that's kind of it is a version of flack it's electronic flak. it is expendable electronic flak. you know what but it's also reusable. It's also for, reusable for as well. <laughs> yeah, this is your deep magazine for dealing yes. with high end peer missiles. That's why I'm I'm big on the concept of we need to have a USS Unicorn. Or excuse me, take the Ford and make it USS Unicorn. Yeah. <laughs> right. You know, y- y'all did USS Robin in World War II. Hey, let's use, do USS Robin in the in the 20th century, 21st century. And well, the- you, you've
0: got you've got that with Queen Elizabeth, but it's and unfortunately, I think I suppose the closest thing to the uh, unicorn was the ocean, and that's been sold to the Brazilians, I think, isn't it?
1: <laughs> it has been, but you see, the thing is, the more I think about it with quadcopters and these sort of things, the more I think about something like the Bay Class. And you know, we were talking about an LHD. Now, I- if I was going to make a cheap LHD for the UK. I would take the Bay-class hull and the Bay-class everything below the de- uh, below deck, which has a dock, and I would add on a hangar level or a, a sort of a level above, which would have a flight deck on it, but another level above, which could take some of the components from the superstructure, could provide a hangar for aircraft, and could provide a flight deck. Because again, if I'm operating drones, I don't need possibly the same level of jet technology flight deck I need for Queen Elizabeth I do possibly need a ski ramp because that's always nice to have but maybe I have a catapult system I don't know there are lots of options and I would literally take the bay class as my basic hull and I'd go right then I can make a cheap LHD out of you and I can put in that space a lot of manufacturing capability because then that gives me two other things that gives me the ability to do uh, ground manufacture. For if I put marines ashore, because I have the ability, I have LC, I have, I can carry LCUs or I can carry LCVPs, those little the the, the little ones, or I can carry the little uh, landing cacs the British have, the LCacs the British have, which are those very fast small Griffin ho- hovercraft, which are for putting in people and other things. And I can use that helicopters and I can support the Marines as sure if they need ground support. Because I I very much see if I've got a drone LHD, I've got two uh, uh, two roles. I have got this role, as Trent's going, which I agree with a lot. And I would combine with a flak wall of gunfire and be very, very happy to have in terms of being able to put up a huge number of quadcopters or septicopters or octocopters and loaded with the noise making facilities. But I'd also be thinking, hang on, when I'm close to shore and I'm supporting amphibious operations, what do I need? Well, I don't need a cat can be provided by a carrier group from further back and all that stuff. What I need is I need air support and I need ground support. Ground support are small vehicles, small unmanned, uncrewed vehicles, which can go into the combat zone and basically provide the troops with. I don't need to do reconnaissance here. This little six-wheel vehicle will roll in. If you blow it up, you blow it up. If you don't blow it up, it'll blow you up because it's armed with a very cheap and cheerful machine gun or something which I can have in oodles and oodles and oodles and, oodles and have lots of. And again, I've got a, I've got reconnaissance. I've got fire support. I've got my little uh, little aircraft UAVs. Providing me with fire support and uh, c- uh, reconnaissance, and this is a big problem I have with the Ajax program. I have to admit, and various other things, Britain's getting itself into trouble with at the moment. The army is that I honestly am sitting there going, "Why do I have a large vehicle for reconnaissance? Why do I want a vehicle which is a going to be a target and b? It's pro. It's big enough. It's probably going to, in the modern age, a- age end up fighting for information." And the first rule of reconnaissance I have always been taught is you do not fight for information because that tells the enemy what you know. You always make sure you slip in and slip out without them knowing you were there. You find out the information before they know you know it. And the thing is, if I'm taking a huge, great, big vehicle, which is bigger than a warrior, bigger than all the other things. And it's fighting for information, it's no use. Then is it a light tank? Well, if it's a light tank, frankly, I want something better than a 40mm on it. I'm sorry, if you're a light tank, I expect you to be carrying more than a 40mm cannon. Unless it's some sort of electromagnetic railgun, super firing dart, which or a dart gun, which it's not going to be. It's case ammunition, which is still a good idea, but not enough. And so this takes me back to this LHD. If I've got a cheap drone carrier lhd and i've got it on the bay class hull which is a nice commercial hull which could take the weight then i've got everything i need it can carry two lcus that's fine it can carry four lcvps it can carry all this and it's got a could have a great big nice combined space uh, on sort of deck above the storage basically already got storage deck space and flex deck space for the Marine, uh, for the royal marines and their vehicles below so you had another flex deck space above you have a huge amount of space on one ship you can put your printing down one end you can have your factory your stores and just everything can be got in and out and you can have a lift which goes for all three floors although if i uh, if i if it is a center if it's a center deck lift that will probably cause a the gentleman who's called engaging strategy on Twitter to hunt me down and kill me. He'll want deck edge lifts because he's obsessed with them. But again, you could fit in a deck edge lift if you really wanted. You could stick in a ramp if you wanted on that hole. It's not, and that's the other thing I like about them is it's the only, uh, it's the only design I can think of, which is not about carrying people. It's about carrying things. If you look at the Bay class, it is a, it's the, uh, called the LSD logistics, it's landing ship dock logistics. It's about carrying things and I think that's a better thing to use your basis for your drone carrier for your amphibious support dock ship than something which is about an LHD or anything which is about supporting personnel and crew because you're not going to need a large number on the board, you're going to need a large amount of space.
2: Well, this gets down to how do you want to store your stuff. I mean, yeah. Big, huge bays are very efficient in storing volume-intensive items. If you're...
1: I don't think the bay class, I would call them big or huge. They're The bay class, as they're configured currently, are uh,
2: 16,000 tons. Well, it, it, compared to a Burke, that's pretty big. (laughs) Uh, You know, how to put, we're having this issue of size inflation with ships that has been ongoing since uh, we started doing powered ships in the sea. I mean, you know, consider that a a a Zumwalt class destroyer is the size of a World War II heavy cruiser. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, And it's the size of Well, it's not that much smaller than the original Dreadnought.
1: (laughs) It's a few thousand tons smaller, but I can see where you're going in terms of size and displacement. Uh, But yes, you see, the reason, again, I'm talking about the Bay class, and I, I, I just think if you've got any ship which is going to be supposed to be operating far enough away from home, it's going to end up having to be big. It's going yep. to happen now having to be have a carry a significant load of it because otherwise you end up having to have a, tri- a, a a massive supply chain, either a massive ship with it or a massive load of ships. And I think you tend to get up more uh, you, if you're able to build them. I think as I said I, a Bay class are what I'd be sort of, you know, basing it on because it's a decent designed hull. If I was going to do it for Britain's perspective. And you know they're plenty fast enough for what I want to do. They'd be capable of doing what I need to do with them. Just, just moving on from away from the bays for the moment, if that. Yeah. mind. Um.
0: Just wondering what your thoughts are for um submarine drones. Um. Reason why it's topical at the moment is that um, Australia's, as you might have picked up from the podcast, is having some difficulties getting a. A replacement for its Collins class submarines in a timely fashion <laughs> and um, they've apparently just ruled out the co- the idea of um, buying off-the-shelf German boats and they are considering focusing on drones i I, I take that as being code for the orca kind of concept the you know the, the medium-sized semi-autonomous slash autonomous Vehicles, um, but I would imagine that underwater would add a whole new dimension of difficulty to you know just about every element of a drone.
1: Well, the British are going the XLUV, uh, XLUV route, route, and we seem to have quite a lot of faith in it and in tradition in the royal navy's term is they don't announce anything until they're fairly sure of it because they don't like to have egg on their face it's one of the things about the royal navy they are so risk adverse when it comes to having egg on their face they will not announce something and everyone will go everyone else is racing ahead of you yes they are they are they are and then the british produce it and it it will have teething issues but it'll usually work and everyone will go where did that come from well actually we've been developing it for years why did you announce it Because it wasn't ready, and we don't want to keep having to go to you every year. Why is this not ready yet? Well, because it's not ready.
2: The issue that is facing every conventional submarine operator is that the U.S. is fielding a very sophisticated synthetic aperture radar on its... uh, E8, or what? I'm trying to remember the p 877 Poseidon. Poseidon. Yeah. Uh, this thing can detect wakes at extreme distances, including the wakes of subverged submarines. It can also detect uh, snorkels at like hundreds of miles range. The ability of manned conventional diesel-electric submarines to operate in a space where this radar is operating on a Poseidon is going through the floor. Because if you have a high-altitude platform with a synthetic aperture radar that can detect wakes at long ranges, well, it can also detect whether a ship is on a surface associated with that wake. Well, I'm seeing a wake, and I, you know, it's going this way, it's pointing this way, and there's no ship at the end of it. That's a submarine. All right, I'm a Poseidon. I'll drop a drone out out the bottom, and it's got a magnetic aperture or magnetic uh, anomaly detector, and I'll I will tell it to go to the front end of that wake. Ping. All right. Now I will drop my winged torpedo onto that datum. That's the end of conventional diesel electric submarines, right there. The ability of aerial radars to track wakes at exceedingly long distances uh, makes man subs in shallow waters a really dicey proposition. Going to drones is absolutely going to be necessary if you're gonna operate in a shallow water environment. And those drones had better move very slowly so it doesn't lead much in the way of a wake. You know, you're, suddenly you are looking at essentially a prowling mine that can talk to you. Is
0: this and why so many whales are dying? Because they can wakes.
2: Whales <laughs> don't have the wakes of ships. Sorry. Oh, okay. just, <laughs> but I, I'm, I'm trying really hard here to find, give you the, the technical number of this new radar that went on the Poseidon. But right now, it's not a threat to things like boomers, you know, submarines carrying ICBMs, because they go out into the deep and they stop moving. And unless you have a plane with this radar over it the whole time, it's going to disappear. So boomers aren't affected yet by this stuff. And if you're looking at nuclear submarines prowling the deeps of the Pacific, they can go slow, too. Um, And because you've got lots and lots of area, you're not going to be able to do the coverage all the time. So, yeah, you can probably sprint and then stop before you get into good coverage. But the thing about drones is they're a disruptive technology. They're coming from small, and they're grabbing, grabbing higher and higher in the pyramid. Um, If you put this kind of radar on a drone that, that can fly for a week, and you can put it over a piece of the South China Sea, and you've got three brothers to this drone trading off for this space, you've essentially sanitized that area of submarines because you know where every single one of them are because you've watched all the wakes, all the wake activity in that area on a continuing basis. There is no way that a crew diesel electric sub can beat that, at least not with current technology. You will have to have an improvement in the hydrodynamics of the sub to not leave a detectable wake for that radar. And this technology is just coming out in the last couple of years. And if the Australian government is not considering that part in its its sub program, maybe that's the reason it's talking about grabbing a German sub. It just wants something for right now so that they can develop the drones for the near term beyond the right now. I don't know. I don't know enough about Australian security to tell you, but I can tell you that that synthetic aperture radar, if we've got it now, the Chinese will have something like it in seven years. That's just the nature of technological warfare.
0: And it takes twenty years to build a submarine
2: yeah. <laughs> from scratch. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You're looking at the The speed of sensor development is such with radar. It's also, it was also a factor in this recent war in Gaza, with in terms of ground penetrating radars. Um, Back in the late 80s, the space shuttle did a mission that found, you know, old rivers that were under the sands of Saudi Arabia. Well, by 1992, there were people running around with carts doing ground penetrating radar to find underground infrastructure so you can do, you know, so you can do work in your yard. Well, it's 2021. You know, if you don't think the Israeli Shenbet didn't have a box truck running around the inside of Gaza with one of these things underneath it, looking at Hamas tunnels before this thing kicked off. Well, <laughs> I'm sorry. That That's...
0: I'm sure they've already got the airborne version of that now, anyway. So
2: yeah, so <laughs> the ability to hide in tunnels, in areas that don't have a lot of water, which high Gaza uh, is problematic, unless you're digging really, really, really deep. You know, the, the way you beat ground-penetrating radar is go so deep the munitions can't get you. That's where the the fighting right now is going to be between. Iran and gaza and hamas and israel is how deep can can hamas dig and still be able to come up he, the problem is yes i can have an underground area that is a safe logistic zone but you got to come up somewhere and the israelis showed in taking down the buildings in the middle of gaza that they are very very much willing to destroy any entrance to a tunnel system that you can think of that's you know, people talking about you know Israel is going to be overwhelmed because Hamas this, that, and the other thing. I'm looking at it from the technological perspective. The Israelis found the tunnels underground. They put munitions into them. Uh yeah, they you know Hamas fired a lot of rockets from from schoolyards. Well, out of the four thousand rockets that they fired, only fifteen hundred of them were hitting anywhere near areas that were important to the Israelis. That's why they were shot down, or at least. 1,350 of the 1,500 were shot down. So what Israel has done is it's turned this war into a war of attrition where they're trading rob- robots for people. And that's where everything is going right now. The assault of military technology is moving to robot warfare with some human involvement but human involvement on the battlefield is going to decrease and the people that are on the battlefield are going to be the equivalent of special forces because they've got to not only do all that infantry in the mud stuff but they're going to have to do all sorts of anti-censor stuff it's a you know a really really sophisticated ghillie suit is what we're talking about people won't go away from the battlefield but their role will change
0: and it's controlling, controlling, coordinating, providing that um, resilience for the communication with the uh, the drones is probably what they'll be mostly required to do.
2: Well, commando gro- drone controls. Mm, yes. Stealthy mm. commando drone controls.
0: <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, we've managed to cover quite a lot of ground in the last hour and a half. Um, was there any other particular area that you wanted to raise or element that you wanted to highlight?
2: Um, I think I'm going to pull something up here that, that I, I sent you all. Um, what happened to the Russians at Khmemi Airfield in mm-hmm. uh, 2018, January 2018? Um, the insurgents there in Syria printed 3D drones. They were, they had inertial guidance, GPS, and they carried basically printed mortar shells. And they came in and they knocked out, oh goodness, between three and five high end jet aircraft in a helicopter gunship. And the Russians made a big thing about it. Uh, When I stopped counting, there had been 45 drones in three separate incidents. In 2018, Uh, the technical uh, analysis of these drones were they could fly about 100 kilometers. And this is why the Russians suddenly put a whole lot of of integrated air defense around their airfields in Syria. It wasn't so much artillery rockets like we've been talking about with the Israelis and possibly with the Turks in Libya. This was insurgents putting together in their garage essentially very small cruise missiles uh, that had a television or, or some sort of seeker on the end that enabled them to hit Russian aircraft. Well, there's no reason that a similar thing can't be used in Western countries.
0: I think it was so only this, once again at- this week. There was a there was a large drone over a military airfield in the United States that was able to outrun the helicopters that were sent out to intercept it. Yeah, um, I can't remember the name of the airfield, but um, yeah, it was uh, one of the, once again one of those eye-opening things.
2: Well, drone technology is increasingly available to subnational organizations for whatever purposes. They want. They could be drones to drop a drug shipment across the border because you've got an electronic security fence, but you don't have air defenses to shoot down drones. They could be for moving contraband into a prison, or or actually, there are small drones now that you can uh, a person grab onto and and can fly them one place to another. Uh, the ability of criminals to use drugs to move drones, or indeed to engage police security forces. Well, give you an idea. Um, You often see SWAT teams all around a place watching someone inside. Well, let's assume that the person inside has their own little television drone, goes up and starts buzzing the snipers that are watching the house. What's that gonna do for, for your, your local police SWAT team? This isn't in their, their training. How are they going to re- react? Are they gonna shoot the drone down uh, or, and risk you know bullets flying into a neighborhood and possibly killing civilians? This is today. Now, if you want to talk drones, you need to think, what can I do at the low end? Because that's where the change is going to happen fastest. And if I'm going to close this, that would be the thought.
0: Okay, so we need those um, uh, energy-emitting rifles. Yes. <laughs> those dis- disruptor rifles or something. As we, you know, we need a countermeasure, a, a low-end countermeasure as well.
2: Yeah. Oh, wait. Drones are, small drones, are essentially... A plastic body, a circuit board, and four wires going to four, if you're talking quadcopter, four little electric motors. It's a flying antenna. Uh, To get a drone that is proof from those little uh, electromagnetic guns, you need to get something that's at the low end of a Class two drone in terms of size, because you've got to have a electronic bus that has got shielded cables, and you've got to have basically a Faraday cage body around that electronic bus to provide you defense in depth, because you know, it doesn't take much dropping of a drone on things for those little connections, solder connections, to break. You need an ele- basically two-layer electromagnetic defense in depth, to operate a drone in a high-end electromagnetic environment. This is why if you're talking military drones versus electromagnetic warfare, you're going to have to essentially have a electromagnetic-proof drone that, that is large and is something that a mini-missile can engage at a good rate of return cost-wise. And
0: those kinds of drones
2: are expensive
0: that's one of the things i was worried wondering about so much is why are military drones so big and so expensive but i guess you've answered it there you need to provide them with the resilience to actually be able to do their job which means weight which means size
2: yes well drones are going to come in several different size classes and The drones that aren't shielded in depth against electromagnetic assault are munitions. And anything else is going to be more expensive, and you're going to have to worry about it. But if it doesn't have a man in it, it's going to be something that you can build fairly large numbers of and not be worried about uh, total losses, just the rate of attrition versus how fast you make them. Yeah. Drones are attrition warfare, uh,
0: which brings us back to the 3D printing package kind yes. of main means of deploying them. Yeah. Your deep magazines. Yeah. Yes, yeah. that yeah. is where which,
2: the answer for the deep magazine is.
0: And that, you know, deep magazines has been the issue that we've kept on coming back to, isn't it, in our podcast series? I suppose it's Whether, the thing you know, we the, keep considering, certainly. Well, you know, That. What's the difference? between a, you know, this is why we came up with the, the need for a rating system was a ship that could meaningfully con- contribute to its defense and the defense of the group of vessels around it for a, a period that's greater than one engagement, because we're talking about, you know, running gauntlets to get to your objective. Body. Gauntlets being area denials that extend out to 5,000 kilometers. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's, uh, The only thing is, is that you can't really print as many uh, SM6s as you'd probably like.
2: (laughs) Well, this is why I talked about the electromagnetic flak drones. Yes, exactly. If you can fill the sky. The
0: Nulca drones,
2: yeah. Yeah, the Nulca drones. Mm -hmm. If you have a a large number of relatively reusable Nulca drones, you've got the ability to defeat a large missile volley at extended ranges. It won't beat a drone swarm at close. You will have to have electromagnetic weapons on your ships to do that. The well, it, This is where things get really interesting, and it, I hate making this go long. I'll try to keep this short. <laughs> we'll we'll
0: discuss it in another one, but you, well, you know, it, raise the idea at least, yes. Okay.
2: You're going to have layers of expendable drones that are vulnerable to electromagnetic assault. You're going to have small shielded drones, which will basically herd these expendable drones uh, in close to your targets. You'll pop out from behind an island this close to uh, pop out behind a hill. If you get a lot of drones really close, you deliver them close, you can beat a laser By beating its ability, its tracking system. If it takes you a half a second to whack a drone, and you've got 80 drones and you've got 30 seconds, you've got 20 drones in your face. This electromagnetic drones, or drones that, however, are vulnerable to electromagnetics, you can just raster your Aegeus radar through them at close range and take them all out quickly. The ability to take out large amounts of drones is going to require something that's got a really megawatt class electromagnetic uh, weapon. Most land equipment has got no ability to generate that sort of power to wipe out munition drones, which is why on land you will see small and, and uh, uh, cheap wind. At sea, when you're dealing with platforms that can throw megawatt class beams of electromagnetic energy at drones we'll wipe out the small cheap stuff the munitions but we'll have a harder time dealing with lots and lots of high end missiles coming at them this is you know, this is the downside of the idea of the, the wall of, of the Nulka wall the Nolko flak wall, is if you've got that up, you can't use your megawatt class electromagnetic weapon without taking out your own flak. So you don't get something for nothing. But you need to think through in a systemic basis of, all right, I've got high-end missiles i got to deal with. I've got munition drones I'm going to deal with because I'm getting close to shore and they're in range now. And how am I going to deploy my flak to deal with both threats at the same time? Um, this is, there was a, again, on Twitter, there was a video of a Chinese drone that looked very much like a 1960s dash drone. And at roughly the same time, there was a Russian helicopter that was advertising I've got a 100 kilometer ma- range missile I can carry four of them. It's not a very small leap to think, okay, I've got 400 kilometer range and anti-tank missiles' it's essentially basically fiber optically guided missiles with a hundred kilometers worth of playout on the fiber optic that can come after my ship and come under the, the, you know under the, the flak wall and maybe it's tough enough to deal with my electromagnetics. You know, this is when you got to have a lot of Dr. Clark's DACA, (laughs) you know, for, you know, if I can have a a half dozen or more of these little choppers, each firing four fiber-optically guided missiles that are enough to damage my ship and cause a big fire. This is, you know, this is when you get into the littorials where things get really damned interesting. It's not going to be easy.
0: Yeah yes it's and that's the thing is it, it's not going to be easy and it's going to change so fast can yes. you change your defenses as quickly as the offense um yeah i guess that's this the,
2: is why 3d printing and electronics and software have got to be a part of a big ship in your group yeah maybe you can have smaller printing centers doing other things but the ability to change your drone swarm and your expendables Quickly and efficiently is going to be the cutting edge of, of 21st century warfare.
1: Because let's say you turn your drone swarm and you've got a load of, and I'm just going to read out for people that the classes which you stand and sort of talking about when we're talking class one, class two, class three, class one is usually up to 20 pounds, class two is 21 to 55 pounds, class three is anything below 1,320 pounds class 4 and 5 are things which are greater than 1320 pounds and they have different operating altitudes so basically your class 5s are your mc mq4c tritons and your global hawks and your reapers and it goes down from there but your class 2s are things like scan eagle or flex rotor and the question the, the thing that becomes is right then so if i'm using class 2s let's say as my Nulka drones can i then adapt them to go off and kill helicopters oh that's absolutely and that's the thing the, 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 the easiest way to, to get rid of those those helicopter missiles the easiest way to adapt my nulker swarm is to go right then how many of these nulkers can i convert to go off hunting for those helicopters before they get anywhere near and me how, and how quickly yeah because if i can if i've got enough for a nulker swarm and i'm still producing them and then I go right then. I'm gonna take, I don't know, this sixty, this 120 off because I've got 300 or 400 of them. Because let's be honest, if they're 60 pounds, they're not that heavy. It's well, let, let me do this in in the thing that you can easily convert into kilograms. So 2.2 pounds is a kilogram, as I've always been taught roughly. So if I make it divisible by 2.2 uh let's go 20 times 2.2 2 is 40 plus that um that's 44 pounds roughly isn't it or Something. am i wrong yeah roughly so let's say it's a 44 pound thing and I, so that's about a, a 20 kilogram aircraft i could easily have several hundred of those easily yeah. And I can easily go, right then, the enemy has at least 40 these helicopters operating this area. I will send off 120. Because even if they don't kill all the helicopters, if they kill enough of the helicopters, they make my life easier. If they cause the helicopters to actually, and this is the more important thing, this is what's often forgotten about air defense. If they disrupt the attack, they make my life easier. Because if I'm dealing with 40 helicopters launching 44 missiles each that's one hundred and sixty missiles coming in but if i take out 15 of those so i'm down the 25 and they launch them in five groups of five so i'm dealing with 20 missiles at a time that's a breeze for me to deal with 20 missiles at a time i can deal with if they're separated by 20 30 seconds each launch i'm in heaven and this is the thing which is often forgotten about to
0: the we're
1: back to the effect of the uh
0: obsolete full over
1: yes, the mediterranean yes. <laughs> yeah it's obsolete but it's breaking up the attacks so instead of me launching a concentrated attack of my air groups which overwhelmed the ship's air defense and mean they can't focus on they can't focus and can't deal with you well there's a hand a couple of aircraft coming in at a time that's nothing that's something they can deal with and that's the, the that that's the reality when you're talking about your swarm and I was listening to I was going, well, the thing I would be going after is the control drone, in which case I would need a couple of probably equivalent UAVs to go up there and be prepared to lose one, because if I can sacrifice a single drone which I can rebuild to take out a control drone which would wipe out an entire attack, that's a easy bit of math, so I'm doing that.
2: Yeah, it, what drone warfare will reward is the most capability per unit weight. This is, you know, when you look at that in the Turkish context and you compare them to, say, Russia, Well, what I'm seeing in terms of, of Turkish operations is they have an advantage in capability per unit weight against the Russians. Just from what I saw in the, the uh, Ziri-Armenian War, I would check that box in a heartbeat. So, yeah. You know, you were talking about, well, yeah, you, you know, the, the Russians would, would eat this uh, Turkish drone control ship in the Black Sea. Well, maybe, maybe not, because the Turkish drones are more effective per unit weight. And, you know, if you're, if you're getting in a war of attrition with unmanned stuff versus less capable uh, unmanned and manned stuff, that's one that you're going to walk away with, winning. And one of the one of the things that I saw on the the website strategypage.com is they did a an apples to apples comparison of of what the Russians have available that can reach Turkey, and the Russians really don't want to lock horns with Turkey right now because the Russians have. Not that many top end fully capable aircraft. And the Turks got a fair number of F 16s who are top end. And they've got all these drones and they've got E 7s. That's not something that I want to tangle with because it will cost me more than it's worth. The Russians' Air Force right now are or is a wasting capital asset that they are not replacing aircraft fast enough to deal with their aging fleet. And the Turks have got some pretty good F-16s and they've got much better drones. And frankly, I, I'm wondering very strongly that, that the big buildup build that Putin was doing was in part detoured because the Ukrainians bought a lot of high-end Turkish drones.
0: And it could imply that perhaps that other major force that is um, not being able to <coughs> replace its aging fleet might be able to regain some of its uh, strength through yes. shifting its focus. Hmm. So um, maybe scrapping the Monhom Richard <laughs> might not have been such a, an ideal idea, but here I am saying that, not having any idea how much damage was done to the uh, structural uh, the, steel in the fire.
2: Way,
1: yeah you don't know what again in that structural steel there's lots of people making a fuss about oh she we could have if we had the yard space we could have repaired her and I was going no that's the worst case you could be making because there is literally it would cost more even if you had the yard space to repair her than to build a whole new one and you yeah. still be worried about the whole life because of all the damage she taken so pretty much your options are build a new one with the same name Fair Fair or yeah. just build a new one, so uh, words, build another one yes. yeah <laughs> The thing is again i'm looking at this trent sent us a lovely you know bit of stuff about 3d printing and the interesting thing is the 2012 metal printers have a 150 millimeter or six inch cubic volume the 2016 ones had a 1.5 meter or 60 inch cubic volume the 2018 one which was made by relatively space their one had a 5.25 meter cubic volume Uh, which is a lot lot bigger and i'm doing the mental conversion or two inches in my head and let's see i'm coming out at 210 roughly inches um using free robotic arms and i'm one that's not that sounds like a lot of space to people, but if I'm talking about compartments on a ship or next to a hangar on an LHD or an aircraft carrier, that's not a lot of space. I can fit that in. Yes. I could build a bigger one than that probably now, because let's be honest, we are almost at 22. Uh, we are almost at 2022 and those have gone every four years, 12, 16. And then, well, no, it's gone four years to 18 and then uh, two years to 18. So, you know, it's, I, I'd be surprised if these days, if we couldn't build a bigger one that could build something quite significant. And I'm thinking and, about yeah, the that, other thing think,
0: is that their resolutions okay. are improving dramatically as well. Mm, and yes. their capacity to mix and match materials is uh, exploding. So
2: mm. well, here's like a like. thought for you. Um, 3d printing can, can also make food, you know, carbohydrates. Yep. Mm-hmm. Well, if it's mixing and matching carbohydrates, it can mix mix and match hydrocarbons. The idea, one of the breaking, break the civilization applications of 3D printing is if they get around to getting a technology that makes plastic explosives.
0: Right, so you can print your own warheads. Well, yeah. Yeah. But also your magazine wouldn't be explosive if you got hit. Yes,
2: well, if you've got the precursor materials that are nowhere near as energetic as the plastic explosive and you're only printing as you need, you've reduced your threat once your hull is penetrated by an explosive the This gets back to the idea of deep magazine. Well, if i it's like a binary explosive, you know two different parts neither of which are anywhere near as energetic as the combination, well, that makes my ship a whole lot less likely to go bang if someone puts a missile there.
0: All right. Okay. Well, let's hope someone who's uh, got purse strings are- <laughs> well, I'm waiting this sort for the, of thing. A,
1: a sci-fi fantasy author to listen to our Bill Trumps and go, so actually what you're talking about is the future of spaceships when they turn up. They're not going to be carrying huge magazines of things. They're going to be carrying huge production facilities. Ding. And blocks of stuff. Yeah, and, and it's like when we're talking about colonization of Mars, etc. And people are going... Oh, how are we going to get all the equipment out there? Well, we're not. We're going to take the constituent parts, which we can build quite easily, and we're just going to drop them. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if the first structures we drop on Mars are 3D printers with their own supplies set up, which will then build robots, which will then do some of the other construction to lay the groundwork for when the eventual humans turn up. So by the time the humans turn up, there is a structure for them to go into. There is the safety, because... I think in on, uh, the agreement, the idea is that in Mars. If we do any initial structures, are going to have to be built beneath the ground. Oh, and need to that. be
0: for uh, radiation reasons, of course. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Anyway, that has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you very, very much for um, thank you giving us your time. Sorry, and um, it's uh, been quite illuminating. Thank you.
2: I wish Jack was here. He would have had fun with this.
0: Oh look, you know, oh, we'll, have to f- we'll sure find some reason. Be. I think to to get you back on to uh, tangle with him (laughs) and uh, I think uh, that having you know his enhanced engineering level of comprehending the sorts of things that you're saying
1: I I, I, I tried my best
0: you try your best well Hmm. yeah okay you're a historian he's a civil engineer yeah I'm a professional um, ignoramus so (laughs) you know I'm sure that between us all we'll come out with a a very three-dimensional view Of a a subject. (laughs)
1: Mm.
2: Uh,
0: Thank you very much again.
1: Okay. Bye. All
2: right. Did you end recording? Just doing so.
0: Welcome to the bilge pumps, where a bunch of naval geeks spout off.